We're going to be covering multiple chapters here. I just want to pick out the first few verses of chapter 42 to get us rolling. So hear God's holy and inspired word from Genesis chapter 42. I'll actually read verses 1 through 6. When God saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word saved for so many generations for us. Uh, may you enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of Christ as we look into it uh, to become more like him. And may you take my uh, meager words prepared here on paper and uh, manifest abundant grace in the lives of your people, that uh, your word in your holy scriptures would prove to be powerful and effective. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a while since uh, we've been in Genesis. Actually, last uh, end of February was when I last preached, and it was from the preceding uh, text in chapter 41. I think in the intervening time, uh, Pastor Kaiser had done his sermon on the whole book of Genesis, so we've seen that as the big picture. Uh, But I don't want to presume that all of us here know the ins and outs of the story that commences in chapter 42 and extends all the way to the end of chapter 45. This story of the brothers of Joseph uh, left back in Canaan, uh, coming to Egypt for red and then going back and returning and going back and all that. But it is a very important story, uh, one that stands out, interestingly, even in general cultural awareness, uh, perhaps second only to the parting of the Red Sea and Moses, which has been made into multiple films, um, decades old as well as recent. Uh, the story of Joseph and uh, his being sold into slavery leading up to his uh, ascension to the governorship in Egypt and here to providing for his family uh, is fairly well known uh, within general society. Uh, You might have even seen or heard uh, the musical production, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, which was a Broadway production and um, I did my due diligence and looked it up on Wikipedia and was interested to see that it was uh, around the time of my birthday, uh, by year, I didn't look at the date, but in the early 1970s that uh, kind of broke on the scene in England and uh, then came to the United States. And uh, I was intrigued that it's the second production written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, who went on to later fame through uh, production such as Phantom of the Opera, Evita, and Cats. And he was only 19 years old uh, when he wrote the score for Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But all that to say that lots of people know about the general story. Uh, that Weber production uh, condenses a few details, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, and enlarges some others uh, to great comedy. But it isn't just popular culture uh, that gives us, or that uh, impresses upon us, above uh, normal attention to this portion of Joseph's life. Uh, Certainly the Holy Spirit does by allocating so much text 
of Holy Scripture to this incident. As I said, as verse, uh, chapters 42, 43, uh, 45 are uh, covering this coming and going and returning of the brothers for bread to Joseph and the result of that, which we will uh, find eventually. Uh, more words are devoted to this portion of Joseph's life than even the creation account or Moses and the flood, the exodus from Egypt. So um, well, it, if you accept uh, the, uh, all the plagues. But all that to say, uh, a lot of attention uh, by just mere mention of how many words on paper in the Bible are devoted to it, uh, shows us the importance that God places upon this bit of history. So certainly in our time together this morning, uh, I can't give you all the details. It wouldn't be a, a wise use of our limited time to even read the whole account. But I do encourage you to read, uh, perhaps at your leisure this afternoon or in the coming days, all of chapters 42 and 45 uh, to get the flow of the story and really to read beyond that. You know, chapters 46 all the way to the end of Genesis uh, give you remaining portions of the story uh, that fills in the end of Joseph's life. An important conclusion to the central part of the story that I want to focus on in our time together today. Uh, so that we can look at these four chapters and some sort of highlights and ways that it plays uh, in the rest of the Bible, uh, I did give you on your uh, sermon note sheet, I believe it's on the back top, uh, just a, a brief, as much as I could be brief, but not skip important details, uh, summary of what's happening. And you can see those points one, two, three, and four, as they're numbered, show brothers coming to Egypt, returning home to Canaan, then coming to Egypt a second time, and then going back to Canaan ultimately. Uh, so there is a brief thing to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, recall, I'm just gonna go through this quickly. Recall it is their father Jacob who instructed them to go. That's the few verses I just read. That 10 brothers, not the 11 or 12, uh, departed. Joseph already being in Egypt, unknown to them. Uh, the younger brother Benjamin remaining, as I just read. Uh, they've come upon Joseph as governor, but he does not reveal his identity to them though he knows who they are. Uh, Joseph then imprisons one of the brothers, Simon, uh, trying and sends the others back. And so he keeps Simon uh, toward to test the loyalty of the brothers and tells them, yes, you can return if you bring Benjamin. Uh, the brothers, uh, seeing this difficulty, are struck uh, somewhat convicted by the justice coming upon them for their sin against Joseph. And we move to what we might call Acts 2, uh, latter part of chapter 42, uh, where they want, uh, or they uh, get home, uh, they find their money is secretly put into their sacks, they're troubled by this, they then give the details of their trip to their father. Needless to say, Jacob is displeased. Uh, he refuses to let them take Benjamin back with them and even rejects Reuben's offer of guarantee. And so they stay home for a while. But then in Act 3 here, chapter 43, uh, it becomes urgent for them to get more food. Uh, Jacob instructs them again to go get more. And finally, he relents, allowing them to take Benjamin, because as they had told him, that's the only way we can return, if we bring Benjamin. And it's Judah this time who offers himself as surety. Uh, they take along with them double payment and gifts, just to prove their honesty uh, when they encounter uh, the governor of Egypt the second time. And on that second visit, uh, when that governor, Joseph, sees Benjamin with them, uh, he plans a banquet to host them. 
and they sit in age order, which they find to be remarkable. Uh, Joseph is so remo- uh, moved with emotion that upon seeing his younger brother and giving uh, extra large portion to honor him, and then the brothers, um, uh, did I skip the details? Yeah, oops, oh, wait. something's out of order there. No, that is right, I'll trust my notes. Uh, so they begin their journey. Uh, they're caught in a uh, sort of a trap of finding the silver cup in their bags. They return, and uh, that's when, uh, in order to sort of free Benjamin, uh, Judah explains uh, the responsibility that he had taken for his younger brother, and it's at that point that Joseph reveals his identity, uh, offers mercy instead of the judgment and the punishment that the brothers were expecting, and um, upon uh, being reunited, Uh, They're sent back in Act 4 to bring back their father. And that's the rest of the story throughout Genesis. So I hope that's a brief enough outline so we can all understand the floor of the story uh, without me reading uh, the four chapters here. So let's turn back to the front side. Don't be distracted any longer. So there's a lot of detail. And as I've said, I'm not going to cover it all. And that's the summary of the general flow of the story. So the key... um, question I have to ask myself in presenting this is what is uh, a a focal point, uh, a key lesson, uh, a group of lessons that we can take away with us for our lives as we pursue the Lord and decide, uh, desire to be more like him. And the key uh, purpose I want to focus on, as you can see revealed in the title, is the certainty of God's promises. Uh, None of this throughout four chapters and beyond was by accident. Even though much human sin precipitated these events, God was superintending it at every turn. Uh, We don't want to fall into the error of thinking that we can be okay with sin because grace will abound, as Paul warns in the beginning of Romans chapter six. Instead, we want to cultivate, and this is my encouragement to all of us as we uh, learn this history lesson today, to cultivate a confidence that nothing, not human weakness, not demonic opposition, nothing could does or will ever subvert the sure promises of God. And in this story, the key promise is to preserve for him a people that will return to conquer a territory as he, God himself, has promised. So friends in the Lord, be comforted by the fact that God's promises will surely be accomplished. Uh, We're gonna look at this demonstrated in the famine journeys of the brothers under several headings. As you can see on your outlines, beginning with the promise made. So it might seem odd at first to think that God promised these events would take place. You know, where did God outline that they were going to travel to Egypt and and all this? Well, he didn't promise in uh, so explicit a terms uh, these uh, duplicate journeys and all of the events that would take place as part of that. Uh, But he did promise that there would be a trip to a land like this and that they would later come out of it. And this, if you're paying attention as I've outlined it or have thoughtfully recalled from your own knowledge of the Bible beforehand, is in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, it's part of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's, it's uh, a really important text to say the least, uh, but the portion of it I wanna share with you, verses 13 and 14. And this is the word spoken to Abraham only about 200 years uh, before Joseph was sold into slavery, so really not that long. God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, 
and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. That's a pretty condensed promise of the fact that they would end up in Egypt, as it turns out, and come out with great possessions. So here we have a summary of chapter 42 all the way through the book of Exodus to where they finally uh, escape from Egypt. Joseph clearly understood God's purpose in ordering these events. It's in chapter 45, verse 7, where Joseph is recorded as saying, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So Joseph knew that a deliverance was going to happen by them coming into Egypt and that that preservation that happened, that deliverance, would prepare them to someday exit as had been promised to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, recall also, so we're just trying to understand what are the promises that had been made. Recall also that Joseph had received prophetic insight earlier in his life about some facets of these events. Remember his dreams, the dreams that he was mocked for and persecuted for by his brothers that led to his being sold into slavery. Uh, one of those dreams had sheaves of corn bowing down to another prominent sheaf of corn that one they were bowing down to was himself. They didn't like that dream. They drove him away and tried to profit from it because of it. But notice, what did the brothers do on their second trip to Egypt? They bowed down before him. Chapter 43, verse 7 records that. They bowed down before him to the earth. What's remarkable is that long before these individuals were even born, apart from actual inward motivations of knowing the significance of their actions, they acted in accord with God's promises and purposes. As we uh, have it worded for us uh, wisely and succinctly in the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, God did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And here we're talking about things that came to pass in the lives of hundreds of people to order all these events so that the Abrahamic promise, or at least its portion of it, would happen in real time. The amount of insight into God's promises varies, of course. Uh, we know that Joseph had a little more than his brothers, and uh, Joseph and his brothers, in living at this time, had more insight than many other people. And sometimes we uh, don't know a lot of details. But in this one case, Abraham did receive a lot of detail and would have passed that on to his progeny. Joseph received this detail, divinely inspired dreams, and we can profit from the same things recorded in Scripture. We can be confident that the great God is the king of all the earth, as the psalmist says in Psalm 47. So all this to say, promises were made. Promises to Abraham that carried down through those who were part of the covenant heritage. Promises were made to uh, Joseph, in those dreams that he saw come to pass. So God promised that Abraham, Abraham and his descendants would travel outside of Canaan, yet be preserved and finally return. Joseph was told by God that he would rule over his family. And it happened, as we can see. But moving to our next point, what's fascinating, perhaps sad, is that though not all... Uh, sorry... What can strike us as, as perplexing and also grievous is that even though people know what God has promised, they don't live according to it. 
right? These promises are often neglected, uh, set aside, other things press in and become more important or at least more prominent to us. So valid for you to ask, in what way were these promises forgotten? So let me draw your attention to some of those scriptures I list under uh, point number two. Uh, chapter 42, if you want to look with me in uh, verse nine, divine author writes, then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. This is the dreams of his youth that led to his persecution by his brothers. If he at this moment during this interview with the brothers remembered the dreams, then we understand that for some time prior to it, he had forgotten the dreams, right? You can't remember something if you haven't forgotten it. Remember years ago when I worked at a winery in Washington State before uh, moving to Omaha, I had worked in the tasting room, you know, serving customers, and you have to have all this knowledge, so to speak, about how wines are made, because like Mr. Swab was mentioning, uh, children ask all sorts of interesting questions. Well, customers on vacation at a winery tasting room also ask all sorts of perplexing questions. And um, so I worked there for a year, and then I was gone for a year on one of my big traveling hikes, and I came back, and people asked the same old questions. And I'd be like, you know, I... I'm pretty sure I used to know that. I've just forgotten, right? I used to know everything. I've just forgotten most of it. Uh, so I had to relearn it. But all that to say that if something is being recalled, it means it was lost. So Joseph had, at this point, remembered those dreams. Time prior, he had forgotten them. In terms of the timeline, uh, it's been about 20 years since Joseph was hauled out of that cistern, uh, conveniently sold to the Ishmaelite traders. Uh, during that time, he'd served in Potiphar's house. Uh, he'd been wrongly imprisoned, uh, then freed through God's providence and the insight that he had into Pharaoh's dreams, uh, set above the whole kingdom to manage the coming abundant years and the onset of the years of famine. Uh, he'd married, he'd had two children, and the firstborn, if you recall, named Manasseh, meaning literally making forgetful. That's told to us in Genesis chapter 31. Uh, Good question, what did he forget? What was he forgetful of? I doubt he was unable to recall his family as if, you know, I don't have any Polaroid picture in my wallet, I don't know who they are, or as if his mind was blank. Rather more likely is that he didn't dwell on that whole situation anymore. It was so far away. Uh, one author I read in my uh, study on this said that uh, it was likely a three to four day chariot ride for Joseph if he had been able or wanted to visit his family in Canaan. So that was a relatively fast mode of transportation. You know, if he's the governor of all of Egypt, he would have had the best transport. So three to four days, if you've got a chariot and somebody taking care of your horses at strategic spots, uh, a lot more than that for the normal traveler. Um, so it's a far, it's like a whole other life that he had left behind and moved on from. Uh, he had a new life, much to occupy his time and his energy, his family, his job, his children. As one commentator wrote, a cloud passed over his memory. Not that it was totally non-existent, but this new, you know, pressing upon me, significant things going on in my life had covered over and occluded his focus on God's promises in those dreams. Uh, completely understandable, really. Very understandable but not admirable, I would say. If God makes important promises to you, divinely inspired in a dream, it's worth pushing back those clouds to make sure that you keep your eyes on the prize. Well, if Joseph 
evidence some failure to keep God's promises front and center in his life. I think also we see in the text here that Joseph or Jacob is similarly guilty. Uh, as you read through these chapters we're covering today, you're going to notice that over and over again, Jacob is very, to say it mildly, very reluctant to have any of his key family members leave Canaan, especially with uh, I mean, he's at some point when, oh, wow, we've really run out of food. He's willing to let uh, the older brothers, the 10, go and get more kind of by necessity. But he certainly will not only when absolutely forced, arm twisted, must, does he let Benjamin go. Likely in Joseph's absence, Jacob had transferred all of that special attention, all of that emotional attachment that once had been on Joseph he had placed that onto Benjamin and would not, unless really, really forced, would not let Benjamin out of his sight. But if he did this in order to protect the one whom he thought would be the inheritor of God's promises, so remember granting for the benefit of Jacob that he's remembering what was told Abraham, passed on to Isaac, passed on to Jacob. So if Jacob is saying, well, we've got you know, a lineage here to protect. We can't let everybody head down the road and get killed by raiders. If that's the case for Jacob, that he wants to protect Benjamin in order to preserve the heritage that God has promised, does he really need to do God a favor? <laughs> is God able to work this out? Is God able to ordain events so that the steps along the way will lead to the ultimate goal that God has in mind? Yes. So in that sense, Jacob did not need to fret. As we read earlier, it was foretold and thus necessary that Abraham's chosen descendants would leave Canaan and return later. Jacob didn't need to worry about the steps of how that would come to pass. Jacob, I think, was putting his filial attention, so his love for that son and the discomfort or risk that might come, he was putting that above the stated word of God that he would have inherited from his grandfather, Abraham. Unless we be so quick to accuse these forefathers in the faith, let us be reminded that I would venture to say very often, we are quick to let the cares of the world press in on us, aren't we? We too often neglect God's word, which is written firsthand uh, to the people living this history, but secondly, to us, the inheritors of these promises, written so that we would know and remember and live lives that are motivated by love and joy and faithfulness to, again, as I said before, kind of push back the clouds so that it doesn't press in on us and participate in us forgetting these promises. So we too are quick to forget. Well, scripture is nothing if not honest about the sins of man, both big and small. Yet, God does not leave his people alone. Amen? So we move on to the fact that the promises, while they were given and then forgotten, they are graciously brought to remembrance. The promises are remembered. Eventually. Maybe a little delayed, but let's be patient with them as God is with us. The promises are remembered. I'll read again that moment in Joseph's life. Verse 9 of chapter 42. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. It was in this moment of seeing his brothers seeking bread that he remembered the promises that had been given to him in his youth via those divinely inspired dreams. Uh, this also was not the only promise that Joseph clung to. Later, 
years of his life, we see a bigger picture of those Abrahamic promises in his knowledge. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, you're probably familiar with the uh, uh, Hall of Fame of Faith. And if you know the wording of what is credited to Joseph, his hope in the Abrahamic promise is what he is given sort of credit for. Reading that, verse 22, by faith, this is chapter 11 of Hebrews, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So that departure is their departure out of Egypt. You know, per the, the third part, I believe it is, or you know, third, fourth clause of that Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14 I read earlier. So Joseph, on his deathbed, remembered the promise made to Abraham. Basically thinking, yes, you all are here. I'm going to die here, but it's temporary. Your children, my grandchildren, will someday depart, as God has promised. And when they do, take my bones with you, because this is not my homeland. That is what he was declaring, which is cited as a great statement of faith by the author of Hebrews there in chapter 22. So brothers and sisters, do we make mention of God's promises? That's what the divine author says. Joseph made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. So do we, in our daily life, in our time spent with neighbors, with children, with our spouses, do we make mention of God's promises? Do we make mention of them, uh, even speaking to ourselves, to help ourselves, to encourage ourselves in time of trouble? Uh, do we share them with our children so that they can have the same living hope that Joseph had, uh, that we have, that we so dearly want to pass along to them, that they would trust God as we do? Uh, do we recommend, make mention of these promises to our neighbors who presently are without God or hope in the world or aliens from the church of God? Do we make mention, to use that phrase from Hebrews 11:22? do we make mention of various parts of God's promises. It's a privilege and should be a joy to make opportunity to do so. So Jacob also, so if I've criticized Joseph and his forgetfulness, now we see two points where Joseph is brought to remembrance. And if I earlier made a critique of Jacob for forgetting, we see also that Jacob remembered. He was awakened to God's enduring promises. His words at the end of chapter 45, you want to turn there with me. And again, if you recall the outline at the beginning, this is when the brothers return with the incredible, just fantastic, mind-blowing news of we found Joseph in Egypt and he's in charge. Uh, when he is told the, that news, Jacob's answer is, and uh, let me quote the preface, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. This is verses 27 and 28 of verse, chapter 45. The spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So there he is saying, I am going to go. And it's no accident that the divine author says Israel said this, as it was foretold that Israel, uh, and it's in, I believe, Hosea, that Israel would be down in Egypt and, and come up. But anyway, uh, there's a second uh, occasion where we see evidence that Jacob has remembered the promises that he forgot. Uh, his prophetic blessing over his sons at the time of his death, 
which occupies uh, all of chapter 49, I believe it is. Recall that he goes through each of his sons and makes these uh, prophetic blessings over them. And similar to the uh, deathbed uh, proclamation of faith, of faith of Joseph being his key point of credit in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith fame. Similarly, this blessing that Jacob offers on his deathbed is what gets his name entered into uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Yeah, I don't have it cited here. But um, so really, uh, how one dies, the words on their lips expressing their faith in God's promises is what is uh, drawn to our attention there in Hebrews 11 for these two men. And then uh, let me draw your attention not to Hebrews for the statement of his blessing, but the very last words on Jacob's lips at the end of chapter, 29, uh, four, chapter 49, verse 29. Then he, that is Jacob, charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. Right? So again, that's back in Canaan. He is saying really similar to what uh, Joseph would later say, which is, this is not my home. Or this is earlier, I'm sorry, uh, than with Joseph. He's saying, this is not my home. My home is in Canaan, and that's where I will be buried. A statement of faith that the whole nation would be returning eventually, just as has been foretold to his father, Abraham. So praise God that he does not leave any of us in our despair, uh, in our busyness, in our distractedness, wherein we forget or are neglectful of God's promises. Uh, it took some real and severe challenges uh, to bring these men to the remembrance of his promises. But through the light of God's spirit, we see these difficulties for Joseph, these trials for Jacob, were fatherly chastisements whereby the Lord God stirred up faith in his beloved children. May the same happen with each of us. And now lastly, uh, before our conclusion, I want to draw our attention to the fact that not just were the promises brought to remembrance, but they are actually kept, right? We don't hope in vain. We don't make it real by wishing it so, but things actually come to pass that God promises. This is an encouragement to us that the things we believe in are not just uh, made so by our believing, but we believe because they're sure, because God says so. So God graciously made the promises, man forgot or at least neglected those promises, man through difficult but loving providences remembered the, providence, the promises, and here God in his infinite power, wisdom, goodness, holiness, keeps the promises. So while it's outside the scope of our discussion this morning to, I mean, I'd have to read to you all of the book of Exodus uh, to show how some of these promises come to pass. But let me draw your attention, as you see in your outlines there, to two texts where it's condensed down for us. And it's in Psalm 105 and in Acts 7. Turning to the Psalms. Psalm 105, a Thanksgiving Psalm, where isn't it interesting what God calls on his people to be thankful for? And if we're thankful for it, it means we're thinking of it, we're remembering it. 
The psalmist instructs us to make God's deeds known among the peoples, verse 1. To talk of all his wondrous works, verse 2. To remember his marvelous works which he has done, verse 5. And, of course, the reason I'm picking this text, key among the words, or sorry, works that we're called on to remember is his covenant with Abraham, verse 9, his sending Joseph before them, verse 17, his bringing Israel into Egypt, verse 23, his bringing them out of Egypt with wealth, as it was worded, if I flip back in my pages, great possessions, silver and gold is what is cited here in verse 37. Fits. Perfectly with what was promised. Amazing. If we didn't know it was a great and sovereign God who always keeps his word, we might be surprised that it actually came to happen. It came to pass exactly as he had promised. The person who sees it as an accident, you know, liberals might explain it away. They might think, oh, somebody later wrote this in because they had to fit the the events of history into some pretended prophetic thing. But no. Uh, We know that this was known beforehand, declared to the prophets who wrote it down for us before it came to pass. And now the psalmist looks back on the promises made, looks back on the promises kept, and says to those peers and to us and the people that will be born after us, remember and thank God. Also, as I said, there's two places Uh, There's others, but we'll focus on these. Acts chapter 7. You may be familiar with this. uh, It's the uh, stoning of Stephen is how it's often often referred to. It's a history lesson given by the deacon, Stephen, uh, when he was called on by the authorities to answer the charges against him. Uh, We're told that he is preaching so effectively, which in any place, is bound to cause trouble. And he is hauled before the authorities, and his response is basically to say, the one true God who called Abraham, uh, which led Jacob and uh, the whole nation to have a sojourn in Egypt with Joseph, which then Moses brought out, you all know the Exodus, and then he moves on to David and to Solomon and to the battles with idolatry and ultimately the the, um, uh, exile and such, He says, you all are basically evidence that the idolatry has come back. You are just like your fathers who rejected the true God because you do not believe in Jesus the Messiah. So a good portion, it's not half, it's not, you know, 40%, but it's a good portion of that history lesson recounted by Stephen is these events we're referring to. The fact that Israel headed down to Egypt was preserved because Joseph had been sent before him and then came up out. So if anyone would say that the events in Genesis 45 to 47 are myth or have no basis in real history, they call not only Moses into question as the author of the Pentateuch, but they also question the integrity of the psalmist. They question Stephen or really the editor of the book of Acts who in Acts 6.10 tells us spoke by wisdom by the Spirit of God. So you see the implications of saying that this history didn't really happen, it's just kind of fit together cleverly to make a good point. You're calling into question the Spirit of God. This is an attack on the triune God. It's an attack on Stephen, it's an attack on the psalmist, it's an attack on Moses. Clearly, we are to know, to have confidence, without a doubt, that the promises God made, he has kept. 
So to conclude, and I hope this has been a helpful summary. I've never preached on four chapters before. Partly that was because I couldn't really figure out how to preach on the four, five verses that I read at the beginning. But hopefully this has been useful to you. And I'll repeat it again, the fact that God accomplished his purposes. His promise was kept. The promise to Abraham was made and sub-promises to that, like the promises made to Joseph via dreams in his youth, those were kept promises that would be ultimately for the glory of God himself. But notice, and this is really how I want to end to draw your attention to a bigger picture, is that even uh, while Joseph is a smaller picture within the Abrahamic covenant, which I've emphasized is what was promised and came to pass, that even the promise to Abraham to have an heir who would take possession of the land, which required the leaving and the coming back to the land, that this was not just about Abraham. Both the heir to come from Abraham and the territory that they would conquer when they left and came back are bigger than Abraham or those human descendants. They center on the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. For Abraham to have any descendants at all, he needed to have a son, right? He needed to have a son by Sarah. Ishmael by Hagar would not suffice. It needed to be the son of promise. Interesting that scripture uses that word. He was a son of promise. That son, of course, was Isaac, who begot Jacob, who begot Joseph and his brothers, ultimately leading to what the apostle Paul identifies as the seed. And uh, in Galatians 3.16, that's emphasized as the singular. Let me read that for you. Paul writes, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So even the Egyptian sojourn of Israel points to Christ, as we see from Matthew chapter 2. If you're uh, familiar with this, in the uh, early... Chapters of Matthew after the birth. Uh, There the gospel writer sees the flight of Joseph, Mary, and the young Jesus to Egypt as the fulfillment, that's the word used there, the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy, where it's written, out of Egypt I called my son. So yes, Israel, as sort of the the, uh, beloved of God as a nation, came out of Egypt, but Matthew ties Hosea's prophecy to Christ as part of the holy family, as it's referred to, coming up out of Egypt once it's safe, once Herod dies. So the Abrahamic promise, this uh, sojourn in Egypt, are all fulfilled in Christ. Indeed, remember Paul's key statement to the Corinthians about these promises made. This is quoting, I believe, from 2 Corinthians. I lost the chapter number here in my notes. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. <clears throat> For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in him is yes. This is the key part. For all the promises of God in him, that is Christ, are yes. And in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So friends, to conclude the conclusion, be filled with awe by the promises that God has made. Be humbled by our human tendency to neglect these promises, but be comforted by God's merciful governance, whereby he brings these promises to our remembrance. And, final key words, be overflowing with praise, with joy, with worship 
for the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the one who met every facet of the covenant on our behalf, what we could not accomplish our own, in whom we have our life and our being, the God who keeps promises. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is uh, awe-inspiring on a human level to see that that which was predicted has come to pass in so much beautiful detail. Uh, But we know that the uh, beauty of this story lies uh, far beyond the human level, Uh, that you are fighting battles in the spiritual realm that we don't even see, Uh, but yet what happens in the human realm is evidence of your superintending providence, your powerful governance over all powers and principalities. And so we want to be a people that heed the instructions of Psalm 105, that we do not forget the great works you have done, the great works you still continue to do, and even in the meantime, the great works you are doing. May we have praise of you on our lips, to our beloved children that you've graciously given us, to our neighbors who, Lord willing, in your bountiful mercy, will come to know you, to love you, and to serve you, and proclaim these same praises to generations to come. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.